0: Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast, the podcast for tennis fans, by tennis fans. Listen as the hosts break down the latest news and tournament results from around the tennis world. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced early each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Here are your hosts, Mike, Eric, and Michael.
1: Okay, so we are here for episode three of our Tennis Attic Podcast Player Profile Series. This is going to be on Leighton Hewitt, and we titled this episode The Man with the Iron Will. Uh, With me are, of course, Eric and Michael. How's everybody doing? Hello, everybody. Hello. All right.
2: Super Bowl Sunday, so,
1: you know, it's a good day. Recording early, you know, because it's it's a big day. So, um, all right, so we are, of course, like I said, talking about Leighton Hewitt. A player who very recently retired, right? He retired after the 2016 Australian Open. And as we were sitting down, I think, what, a couple of months ago, we were deciding, you know, which players to cover initially. You know, of course, we did Margaret Court and we did Rod Laver. And we so just. So keeping thought, on the Australian theme. <laughs> right. We just figured, you know what, we may as well just go <laughs> in and do Leighton Hewitt as well. All right. So uh, we're going to do. As we've done in the first two player profile episodes, uh, this is going to be a five-set episode. It's going to have set 1 being about who the player is. Set 2 is going to cover the career highlights. So you'll get a lot of, you know, information about, you know, career win-loss uh, records, grand slams won, etc. Set 3, what makes him or her so great. Set 4 is going to be Uh, The set where we generally pose a couple of questions is kind of a bit of like an Aces Wild kind of uh, set where we can pretty much talk about whatever we want to, and then set five will be our final thoughts on the player that we're talking about. So I'm going to go in and we're going to talk about the history of Leighton Hewitt and kind of profile his rise as he goes up through the rankings and his ascension to number one and then his career as it's gone along in the 2000s, up until his retirement. So, Layton Glenn Hewitt was born on February 24th, 1981, in Adelaide, South Australia, to Glenn and Sherilyn Hewitt. His father was a former Australian rules player, while his mother was a physical education teacher who played netball. Leighton Hewitt showed a significant interest in tennis from an early age, and at five years old, his mother and father took him to his first Australian Open, which cemented his love for the game. However, tennis was not his only sporting interest. His father likely influenced a passion for Australian rules football, and physical, the physical game is not for the faint of heart. He played both sports for some time before devoting himself to tennis at the age of 13. After fully committing himself to tennis, Hewitt trained full-time as a junior at the Seaside Tennis Club in Henley Beach. It is here that he fell under the guidance of Peter Smith, who had become his coach for only two years from 1997 to 1998, but provided an indelible structure for a player known for his fiery attitude and brash exterior. After qualifying for the Australian Open at his 15-year-old in 1997 and becoming the youngest to do so in its 108-year history, He would make good on the promise he had shown by winning his hometown title in Adelaide by defeating Andre Agassi in the semifinals and fellow Aussie Peter Stolberg in the finals. Okay, so we're going to stop here and talk a little bit about uh, what I just said. Uh, We have a young Leighton Hewitt. He seems to show a fascination with tennis at an early age. And he he plays both that and Australian rules football, which I looked up, and it's it's a weird game. Do you guys know anything about Australian rules football? I don't. It no. is. It, it's, it, it's probably it's,
2: close to rugby, is it not? Or? it
1: kind of. Yeah, it, it has some similarities to rugby. You have to you, you have a ball, and you have to run with it. So it again kind of like rugby, but you have to you have to kind of bounce the ball every so often. So you can't just like run with it like you would rugby or football, American football. Um, And then there's different ways you can score. um, But it's an interesting but very physical game, much like rugby. Uh, And I guess much like American football as well. So he played both for the longest time. But when he decided to do tennis, he did it at 13 years old. So I guess the question for you guys is, what do you guys think of a player – who you know plays this really physical sport, and yet transitions into tennis? Do you think that that had any impact on him as a young tennis player, having played such a physical sport other than tennis? Because they're they're very different sports.
2: Probably better better shape, better endurance than than yes. someone. Yes, that was you my know, thought too. It it'd be like uh, you know they said about Usain Bolt <coughs> talking about you know wanting to try to play some football, and dude's you know a sprinter. Um, and while he'd be really, really fast, you know, there was a, a pretty easy debate on, OK, so, you know, for a few plays or for a short period of time, you know, he better blaze down the field and beat people. But he's not a long distance marathon runner, you know, so it, it, you know, he'd be great at it. But it's not like it would be something you are able to do a lot of. Now, with Hewitt, you know, playing a really physical style game, doing something and then going to tennis, which is endurance-heavy, more than less, you know, not physical strength-wise, I think that benefited him probably having more strength, hitting the ball harder than kids his age, Um, and just having more endurance, playing a very physical sport as well as playing tennis at the same time. I think it probably just gave him a leg up in that department, you know, endurance and strength.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's a good thing. I think it also shows that as tennis players, young tennis players, they should be convinced to do other sports. I think it's important, and I think uh, Hewitt kind of shows why, and you just uh, outlined the benefit of playing another sport which has a positive impact on your progression and growth as a tennis player. You know, initially you're thinking the two sports couldn't be more different, so why would you have them play this? And to be fair, I, I don't know that I would have I don't know that I would have a tennis player also play um, Australian rules football just because it could be dangerous and really impact their career, but you could have them play different sports, which could have a positive impact on them, you know, as a tennis player, you know, later on. So I thought that was a pretty interesting. And then of course he's a 15 year old. He's the youngest player to make the draw for the Australian open in 108 year history. So, again, it shows you that he has this, you know, precocious ability and it kind of ties in with his, you know, never say die attitude on court where he just never gives up. And like Nadal and like Jimmy Connors, that's two other players which have a very similar mindset, which is you never give up on a point until the point's over. Uh, And that that came to like epitomize, I think, Hewitt throughout his career.
3: Absolutely, and I just wanted to make one quick uh, reference here, Mike. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's Jason Stolmberg, not Peter Stolenberg. Stolenberg. Oh,
1: sorry.
3: Jason Stolenberg. I don't know why I put Peter Stolenberg. But but again, I think that that showed his promise at 15 years old, beating – and then, obviously, Andre Agassi was um, obviously still one of the best players in the world at that point in 97. um, And then beating a fellow Australian, which there was probably a lot of pressure on him playing another Australian in Australia – um in the final so um definitely a lot of promise and again getting into the australian open at 15 is is pretty amazing we we don't see that that often anymore that super super young players like that get into the main draws that often
2: no not in this day and age
3: especially qualifying he didn't get a wild card he qualified to get in which is even more impressive
2: yeah the, the, the toughest route to go
1: yeah all right, so let's move on here. So, after parting ways with Smith, his coach, Darren Cahill took over for the next several years. He coached him from 1998 to 2001. And this is where Layton's career really took off. He officially joined Australia's Davis Cup team in 1999 and provided a major spark by leading the charge of the team itself. He defeated Todd Martin, 6'4, 6'7, uh, 6'3, 6'0, and then defeated Yevgeny Kafelnikov, who promised, by the way, a beatdown on the brash young Hewitt before ironically getting beat down himself in straight sets in the semifinals. Australia would go on to win Davis Cup that year. Over the next couple of years, Hewitt's ranking skyrocketed. After tasting doubles Grand Slam glory in the year prior, Hewitt entered the 2001 U.S. Open and tore through the draw before downing both Kafelnikov in the semis and Sampras in the finals. Both matches were easy, straight-set victories, uh, with the sets often like six-one, you know, six-three, six-two to six-two sets, and um, he followed up his success with the year-end Masters in Sydney by defeating Sebastian Grosjean to cap off the year-end number one ranking. However, oddly enough, he parted ways with Darren Cahill. And Jason Stolberg, Stolberg, yes, I have it written down correctly here. Jason Stolberg, <laughs> whom Layton had defeated for his first title only a few years prior, became his coach. So that was interesting because uh, Stolberg was really young. You know, he was only like 23 years old, 22, 23, when he became Layton's coach. So that's something you don't see that often. Uh, someone that young becoming the coach of somebody. Who was number one in the world at that point and also obviously very young. Um, despite some not feeling Hewitt a, a credible number one player, he managed to prove the doubters wrong by winning Wimbledon in 2002, becoming the first Aussie in 15 years to hold the title at center court. He would also go on to hold on to his year end master's title by defeating Juan Carlos Ferrero and obviously also retain the number one ranking at the end of the year. Uh, so we have a young, Australia or a young uh, Leighton Hewitt uh, blazing a trail for Australia. He ends up more or less annihilating Sampras at the U S open
4: goes mm-hmm.
1: on defeats now David Nelbandian uh, for the Wimbledon title in 2002. So this is a who, who's not just um, winning grand slams. He's winning, you know, big master series titles as well. So we have, I think a player that is young, He's a solid uh, ball striker. Um, never gives up. What do you guys think of his early success at this stage of his career, and I guess where the ATP was at the time? What do you think about what he's done at this point?
3: Well, at that point, they were beginning a transition. Um, you know, around 2001, we started seeing Sampras was basically on his way out at that point, and you know, he was the one that was dominating most of most of the big titles at that point um or up to that point um agassi of course played on for a few more years but he wasn't dominating everything at that point in time either so it was starting to get into a transition phase and something that we're going to talk about later and that hewitt kind of started to take that mantle a little bit um i think the biggest thing for me was because of how he won the u.s open in 2001 uh also finishing the year and number one and winning the year in I find it really odd – and again, we weren't um, in tennis necessarily or we were just starting our even viewing of tennis at this point in time. I find it really odd that a lot weren't feeling him a credible number one at that point. Um, You you won a Grand Slam, defeating two of the best players in the world in the semis and in the final. You finish the year number one and you win the year-end championships basically in what, like a a four-month stretch? Basically, yeah, from you know the U.S. Open to the end of the year. So in my eyes, I, I find it really odd that they that there was doubt that he wasn't a credible number one at that point. Because prior to that, of course, he won Australia or he um, he won Davis Cup um, with with Australia. So he had already shown other things other than just winning that Slam. I mean, there was other events that he, that he did well in and things like that. I I just find it really odd that. That, they, uh, that, that people find him to not be a credible number one, especially nowadays when we talk about so many players, not on the men's side but even on the women's, that have gone to number one without winning a slam. This guy here, he's won a slam, he's won the year-end championship, he you know he finishes the year number one, he's already won Davis Cup, and you're still arguing whether he's a credible number one. I, I just find that really crazy to believe. <clears throat> uh, Eric,
1: any thoughts on, on this uh, up to this stage in... Hewitt's career?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, because for the most part, I think there's a little bit of um, stigma around becoming number one. I mean, I'd have to look back at the rankings in in the 90s, but for the most part, the people who held the number one ranking, you know, had to win a lot more than I think he did. He benefited, and I think a lot of people felt that way, he benefited from everybody else, you know, the Sampras and Agassi, you know, this is before Agassi's resurgence, but... You know, Agassi getting older, so on and so forth. And he kind of, you know, yeah, he won a Grand Slam and then won the year in championships and, you know, did a couple of things. But in the the gist of it, that's not a whole lot. I mean, look at today. Look what you need to do to become number one. And it was like that in the early 90s. I mean, it was Sampras and Agassi for the most part. And, you know, the late 80s, um, you had uh, Becker and so on and so forth. So I think there was a little bit like like how we feel when on the women's side there a couple of years, like a a decade ago, a couple of women in the same year both had the number one ranking, yet neither one had won a Grand Slam Mm -hmm. that year. So I think, in my opinion, that's why people felt that way. You know, well, okay, you did win a Grand Slam, um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't make you feel like you're number one for the whole year, and that's probably has more to do with it um than anything else
3: and, and i understand that and i agree with you um but hewitt did win six titles in 2001 he didn't win just the u.s open and, and, and the year-end championship oh so true, he did win four true. other champion titles that year um and you know uh andre obviously was still playing well that year he did win australia that year if we remember um you know for something like that and you know the guys that he beat um in the year-end championships of course you know the, the who's who at that time Ivanisevic, Kirtan, Agassi, Rafter, Ferrero, Kafelnikov, Grishan were all in uh, at that point in time in two thousand one. Those were the guys that were in the year-end championships with him. So it wasn't as though he wasn't playing anybody, and he won the year-end championship in the final in straight sets. Um, I, I just I just found that odd. That was my biggest thing. I just found it odd, and
2: you it know, is, and, it is a little bit. But I like I said, I can see how people were thinking. Okay, you know, you did kind of good, but you know, six titles is the same thing. Where were the six titles? You know, I don't know. I don't know if they called them Master Series back then. They called them something else. But if they, they were all, if they were all huge events like Master Series, and okay, more legitimate. But if you look back and see, you know, maybe he had a handful of two fifties in there. You know, and it's like okay, so it's a title, but it's a junk title because you didn't play anybody else. So I'm not saying that was the case. I'm just saying, you okay. know. You kind of have to look into it and dive deeper. But, I, you know, the sentiment, I think, too, was because Americans were starting to fade a little bit. You know, Sampras was retiring or hard or retired by that time. And Agassi was kind of on his way out. So people don't like to see the changing of the guard too much. And they're going to discount anybody they see as a threat that they don't like. That was the same thing with Djokovic. You know, you have people who love Djokovic, but when Djokovic started to finally break through in 2011, and kind of went on a tangent. You know, a lot of people were, you know, against it. They didn't. They wanted to see Rafa and Roger. It was such a great, great thing. Um, you know, back and forth for so long, and then all of a sudden, you know, he makes a change, and then he goes on a tear. And you know, you remember people didn't really like it. Now it was kind of awe inspiring how well he played, but uh, it wasn't wasn't the same. So.
3: Well, well, his his biggest title that he had um, that season, other than the year-end Masters Series and uh, the U.S. Open, he won Queens Club, which we all know what Queens Club is um, in in London. He beat Tim Henman in the final.
2: Okay, uh, so there our point event.
3: Yeah. So, and I mean, again, that's back back in two thousand one again. But uh, but that was the biggest one prior to that, and he actually won the week after Queens Club. Uh he won another grass court title in the Netherlands back to back weeks. He beat Henman and then he beat Glamro Cagnes in the uh the second tournament. Okay. In back to back weeks. So again, we talk about, you know, grass court players. Hewitt was kind of among the best grass court players in the world at that point, if we think about it.
2: Yeah. Oh, I agree. He <laughs> just hadn't broken through till the next year is all.
3: Yeah, exactly. Okay. The only thing I'm gonna add before I move on
1: here is that um and I'm gonna get more to this later. I think it has something to do with Hewitt's – also Hewitt's lack of weapons and we'll get more into that here in in a bit. Okay. All right. So um, anyway, after all this happens, uh, 2003 is where the winds of change begin to set in. Uh, Those who felt that Leighton was little more than a placeholder champion – may have felt vindicated at this point, because both Andy Roddick and, more importantly, Roger Federer would go on to surpass Hewitt in the rankings and also go on to win Grand Slam titles that year, where Hewitt did not. That being said, Hewitt continued to fight, as he always did. Now, after sustaining big losses for much of the second half of the year, he would go on to win another Davis Cup title by defeating Roger Federer and Juan Carlos Ferrero in five set victories. Uh, Two of the better victories in his career, and rightly so, because they were pretty impressive, especially the the Federer one is often held in particularly high regard when it comes to Hewitt's career. Uh, 2004 saw Hewitt become the first player to lose each Grand Slam to the eventual champion. It culminated in a straight-sets defeat by Roger with uh, two sets lost at Love. Uh, I believe that was the U.S. Open. In 2005, he made it past an informed Andy Roddick to make it to the Australian Open final against Marat Safin. He won the first set easily, 6-1, and despite being up a break in the third set, he would eventually go on to lose that Grand Slam in four sets. Uh, Despite still being in his prime, Hewitt's results (coughs) began to drop off at this point. 2005 saw the rise of Rafael Nadal to battle Roger Federer, Combine that with Andy Roddick, and it was becoming increasingly clear that a tough road lie ahead for Hewitt. Uh, so now we're watching uh, Hewitt uh, being surpassed, uh, Roger coming onto the scene, uh, Roddick obviously bursting onto the scene the way he did and becoming the mainstay uh, for, for a decade uh, in the top 10 and uh, being the best you know, American tennis player. And then, of course, Nadal in 2005 kind of bursting on the scene as well. And, and we've seen their careers, um, respectively, blossom and go on. So now I guess the question is, uh, at this point, Hewitt's career kind of is is beginning to have a tough road. Uh, he's in his prime, but he's getting surpassed by players who are um, maybe a little more athletic, have more weapons than he does. So what do you guys think?
3: Well, I think that's the biggest thing is that the, the lack of weaponry. And you look at somebody in that time frame, well, you look at Roger starting in at that point. Um, I mean, obviously, we know that Roger had the all court game that he does now. But let's be honest, even at that point in time, Roger's weaponry wasn't the same that it is, you know, even a few years later um, as compared to even what it is now. So, but, but he obviously had a lot more weapons. When we talk about Roddick, obviously the biggest serve in tennis at that time, uh, as well as one of the biggest forehands in tennis at that time. So you know, we look at his, guys like that. We look at Murat Safin, who had power off both sides. And it, just, it, was, it was the fact that he prior had found success in being able to just outlast and outwork people. But you know, the next couple of years, it set in that guys had enough firepower to hit through him, basically, or to be able to push him so far off the court that they were able to then put away an easy shot, even in those long rallies that, that Hewitt was able to to do with his incredible speed and you know basically run down everything and keep keep getting it back. Um, but I, I think that was the biggest thing that I saw is that the simple fact that. Guys were able to just out hit him at that point in time. Um, now, obviously, like we talked about, um, you know, one of the greatest shot makers ever, as far as you know, on the forehand and backhand side. You know, there's a lot he could do with it. He had a ton of variety, but that again, um, we again see that you know on the women's side with some players too, when that shift kind of happened in the early 2000s. Um, I think some a reference that you'll have later on, Mike. But I, I just think that too too much power eventually. Um if you have players that are on the same level as you as far as their fitness, but they have those weapons that you don't, it it, it basically is an uphill battle from the start, no matter what you do. Um and I think that was just the case uh for Leighton. Yeah.
1: Uh anything you want to add to this, Eric, before we move on? <clears throat>
2: um no, my Mikey kinda of hits points. I was hoping he would quit hitting them and Sorry. Make me something. me <laughs> uh, but now I pick the bones, Eric. Pick the bones. I, I basically just concur. Um he was, you know, I, I think that for a time he was better better than everybody, and I'm I'm not bagging on Hewitt, but he was it's like being better than it's like being the best B list actor. OK, and it's mean to say because he, he did win two Grand Slams. But I got to honestly say it's not like it, it, he was the best B-list actor. You know, it, it wasn't like he was, you know, Agassi. You know, he may beat Agassi, but he didn't beat Agassi, Agassi. You know, he beat Roger, but he didn't beat Roger that became Roger. So he kind of took advantage of a lull in between superstars. You know, is, is he considered a stupid superstar because he won a couple? Yeah, but... And it's mean to say it because – but it's just – it's how it is, is that he fell in that that little time period where he was better than everybody else. But he wasn't in a league of his own. He wasn't in, you know, Roger and Rafa and Djokovic. Um, You know, he took advantage of of it. And, you know, there's nothing he can do. It's not like it's his fault. Um, It just – I think, you know, he became number one. He won. He's like, okay, you know, I'm doing good. But he just was never – the one, he was never going to be a Sampras and win 10 grand slams because he shouldn't have the firepower. So he, you know, was good enough. And he, like I said, he won those couple of slams. But then once you saw Roger start, you know, and Roddick kind of come out, it kind of spelled doom because he just didn't have enough in the tank, you know, unless his guys were having an off day and he was having a really on day. He was a great player, consistent, but he just didn't have the weapons. So, I mean, I feel bad and, uh, you know, I hope he comes back and keeps doing the doubles like he just did recently. Uh, and he has a chance to maybe get some, you know, pull up. Oh God, what's her name? Hengus retired again. Hengus. Hengus. Yeah. yeah. pull Pull Hengus, do something like that, get some more <laughs> titles under his name. But I think, uh, like, like I concur that, uh, he just didn't have it. Once those guys came on, it was like, okay, get what I can. You know, he makes it to semis of some stuff. He makes it to some quarters, but he's never really a true threat again. After, like, 2004 or 5, it yeah. was basically done. I didn't see him as having a chance.
1: Okay, so let's move on here. Uh, 2006, and we're going to kind of run down a little quicker through these years because, at this, like I said, at this point, Hewitt's career, uh, while he was always a, a solid player after uh, – 2005 uh this is like eric like you said around the time where he was being surpassed by Mm -hmm. other players and therefore his results started to suffer and injuries would crop up so 2006 he defeated james blake for a queen's club title now this was his first title in 17 months it's a long Mm -hmm. stretch there and he but it was a good title queen's club grass you know so it's a big one for him uh but otherwise 2006 was pretty much what it was uh 2007, he posted solid, if not spectacular, results. He won one title, which gave him at least one title for 10 consecutive years at that point. So that's a pretty good thing to say about a player. Uh, There's a level of consistency there uh, year in and year out. Uh, 2008, defeated Marcus Bagdadis in five five sets at the Australian Open. Uh, But unfortunately, he suffered a hip injury, and that affected him all year. And uh, therefore, his results in two thousand and eight after Australia were were not very good. That sounds a lot like somebody else we know recently who a certain, finally a certain got uh, surgery. Yeah, a certain Andy Murray. Uh, yeah. <laughs> two thousand and nine, he won his second clay title and his second uh, overall, and I think the last one I believe he would ever win, and the first title overall since two thousand and seven, since you know the Queen's Club uh, title. Um, he would, uh, or no, he won his, yeah, so he won it. was actually the U.S. Clay Court Championships. He also won his 500th tour victory. And he lost at the Wimbledon quarterfinals to Andy Roddick in a five-set thriller. Uh, it was one in which he had chances in that final set to put away Roddick, and he did not. And unfortunately lost. Uh, 2010 underwent a hip operation in January. He then went to go on to win the Jerry Weber Open final against Roger Federer for his 28th title. It, won his, it was his first win over Roger since 2003, and it snapped a personal 15-match losing, losing streak against Roger. 2011-12, uh, uh, just lackluster results combined with injuries. Uh, I looked; He lost in the first round in, in many, many of the tournaments that he entered that year. <clears throat>
3: I will say I think that was one of his biggest years injury-wise. I think 2011-12 was impacted more than any other year uh, with injuries for him. I think it was like just one injury after another. He would come back, he'd get injured, he'd come back, he'd get injured uh, kind of thing for those two years. So that obviously compounded the effect, like you said. A big deal. Uh, 2013,
1: it was kind of a comeback year, a bit of a resurgence for him. He posted five top ten wins over players. Uh, and returned to the top 100, obviously, with the injuries in 11 and 12, knocking him down the rankings pretty far. 2014, he won Brisbane by defeating Federer, uh, 6-1, 4-6-6-3, collected his 600th win by defeating Robin Hase at Miami, and won Newport Hall of Fame title by defeating Ivo Karlovic for his 30th and final career title. 2015, announced, he announced his plans to retire at the 2016 Australian Open. 2015 was also a marked decrease in his results uh, with a, a long string, again, of first-round defeats. 2016, he retires after losing to David Ferrer in straight sets in the second round. Uh, takes over Davis Cup captain from Pat Rafter and then comes back out of retirement in 2018 to play doubles in Australia and probably doubles, I think for other occasions throughout the year Uh, and unfortunately lost in the quarterfinals, but made a good run in Australia this year. So we
3: were all all, uh, pretty excited about that, seeing that run take place.
1: (laughs) Yes. Okay. So let's uh, look at 2006 through 2016, I guess, 18 really, but let's look at that. There's a 10 year span and eric like you said he was being passed or had been passed at this point and we've just saw just by looking at his results a lot of years of of decent results some big wins but also a lot of injuries which really impacted his career going forward uh, from 2006 uh, what are you what are your thoughts eric on this stretch this like 10 year period of hewitt's career
2: I mean that's that's the the Occam's razor of the uh, of the t- growing up and playing the that football. You know the damage. You know you don't realize what it does to the body. Being young, you think oh tough it out, but that could have ultimately led to him becoming injured more easily. Um, could have nothing to do with it, but I think there's you know kind of a determination there that uh, it it might have affected it. And you know when you go through multiple injuries, I mean. Don't get me wrong. I've seen people come back from injuries before. Uh, Nadal's like the best at it, you know, because I think he knows what to do. So many injuries with the knees. But normally someone gets an injury and, uh, you know, and they keep getting injured over and over again. It's hard to have confidence. And I think that was probably the worst thing. He started to get passed up. He knew he just wasn't as good as the newer guys. And then you start throwing a couple of injuries on top there and you just feel like, okay, yeah, he knows he can beat lesser people. But being injured, do you really have the self-confidence to think, okay, no, I can still do it. I can still go out there and I can beat Roger Federer, who's won three out of four grand slams two years in a row now, You know, being a four and a five or a five and a six. I don't remember which two. But, um, you know, it's one of those you see that and then you just wonder what it does to him. Um, Uh And you just never could really recover. You know, like you said, you got, you know, he won Brisbane – um, you know, beating Roger Federer, that was in 14. You know, that was, that's after, you know, don't me wrong, he's old like Roger, but, you know, that's, uh, that, that's facing a Roger who's been winning, even in not winning Grand Slams, 50, 60, 70 matches a year, you know, once, you know, at that point, 16 or 17 Grand Slams. So it's not even that great of a win you knowing you're beating up somebody else who's also a little older and beaten up too. Um, and I just think it's unfortunate that the injuries happen. And I think that's really what derailed it. But I go back to, you know, the, the rugby, not the rugby, but the Australian rules football and wonder, you know, did that have anything to do with him getting injured later? Long-term effects, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, at that point, what research was going to get done? Nobody really knew. Everybody just, like, it was old wives' tales. You know, <clears> oh, he'll <throat> be fine. But you do something to a bone or a tendon, and while it may heal... You know quickly enough that you don't really notice as a kid as you get older those they start to show those little battle scars start to show and I think you know that's what made him more susceptible to injury and he's one of those that I can't say would have ever really crushed it without the injuries. Um, I think his time in the sunlight he had and he wasn't really injured in 01 and 02 um, but I think he would have had a chance to win some more titles regular stuff um, if he hadn't gotten injured so much yeah and the and in the hip I mean that's it's like the worst thing, almost the worst injury you can get besides your elbow and like a rotator cuff. I mean, it's like those three things are your movement based injuries, and you know you had to have multiple surgeries, i think multiple surgeries by the time okay. he even got out of retirement and got to retire. it just you can't overcome that,
3: okay, anything to add michael yeah i think I think the biggest thing that encapsulates this ten year stretch of his career is. Um, and by the fact that he got to five and you know he got over six hundred career wins, you know by uh, 2014, I, I think that the the best description of that ten year period is um, Leighton was grinding away. I mean, there's no other way to say it. He was playing against guys that, again, as we talked about prior, had more firepower, guys that were younger than him at this point now. And you know, he was just out there grinding and still doing giving it out his absolute best, which again is something I you know, I think we really want to encapsulate in this um player profile because this is a guy that did a lot with without a lot. Uh, I guess would yeah, be a good way to well. put it. No, he didn't didn't yeah, yeah.
2: Agreed.
3: Yeah, and and you know, that's another thing that we're gonna get to here shortly, but I, I think grinding away was the best way to describe this period of time. He st- and the thing was, it wasn't as though he was getting blown off the court by these top guys that he was playing against. He was giving them plenty, you know, to deal with. It's just he was always getting over the finish line. Guys like Roddick, guys like Federer, you know, other guys at this point in time, he was able to compete with them, but he wasn't able to beat them in a lot of instances. Not all the time, but in a lot of instances, especially in big events. We, you know, we we highlighted the quarterfinal loss to Roddick there in five sets. Uh, in Wimbledon, that, that obviously was, was, like you said, Mike, he had multiple chances to win that match, couldn't pull it off. Again, I think just encapsulating, you know, encapsulating, again, he didn't have that much at that point in time as far as firepower, and, and it never really did, and I think that was just the hardest part is he never had the ability to just put a match away, even when he was ahead, and I think that's again encapsulated his game as is. he was the, the true epitome of a grinder
1: uh-huh. <laughs> yeah
3: alright so uh,
1: we are going to move on to set two and we'll
4: do that now do you remember the last time you picked up a pen and noticed the quality how about a razor you handled that didn't feel cheaply made When was the last time a product made a true and lasting impression on you? In this era of the mass-produced and disposable, anything lovingly handcrafted seems to be a rare thing. Maybe it's time for a change, and Spindlecraft can help. At Spindlecraft, passion and superior quality make it stand out from the faceless, automated crowd. Material for each piece of work is thoughtfully chosen, crafted, sanded, and finally polished with the kind of attention to detail and dedication you can't get off of an assembly line. At Spindlecraft, they know that quality of the material is as important as the quality of the craftsmanship and is a reflection of both the artist and the customer. So rather than buying some cheap pens or razors that you won't give a second thought, purchase something from Spindlecraft. To see what they have to offer, go to www.spindlecraft.com. And at the checkout, enter the word geeks. That's G-E-E-K-S to get 10% off. We're sure that once you have a Spindlecraft product in your hand, you won't want to put it down.
1: Okay, set two is career highlights. So we're going to run down through some, some facts here about his career, give you some numbers, and uh, we'll also talk about that a little bit. So let's do this. Career win-loss record for Leighton Hewitt. He's 616-262 and with a 70.16 winning percentage. Career titles, 30. Weeks spent at number one, 80. Uh, Two Grand Slam titles won, as we talked about, the 2001 U.S. Open and the 2002 Wimbledon. He's the youngest to win a Grand Slam doubles title in the Open era at 19 years and six months. The youngest to win at least four titles or better since Pete Sampras in 1990, and uh, he did that a decade later in 2000. Two Davis Cup titles, 1999 and 2003. Year-end champion twice in 2001-2002, which obviously also coincided with his year-end number one ranking being the same, 2001-2002. Now, here's the list of coaches, and the reason I put this in here is because I found it extremely interesting. Now, there's some overlap here, and there's a reason for that, but I do want to run down through this list. Peter Smith was 97 to 98, Darren Cahill was 98 to 2001, Jason Stolberg uh, was 2001 to 2003, Roger Rashid, 2003 to 2007, Scott Draper, 2007, Tony Roach, 2007 to 2009, Nathan Healy 2009-2010, Brett Smith 2010, Tony Roach again from 2010 to 2016, and then Peter Luzak 2013 to 2016. And I put these here for a reason cuz I found this interesting. Now, granted, I understand that Hewitt played for almost 20 years, you know, if you look at his career.
3: About 20 years. Basically yeah.
1: 20 years. But <clears throat> even so, that 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 seems like a lot of coaches to me and maybe it's just because I, you know, I'm an adult fan or, or if you'll even look at Roger, Roger hasn't had that many coaches over his career and Djokovic, I know he made a big coaching change recently, but you know, if you look at some of these, these players and it's like, there aren't that many coaching changes and granted they are the ones that are, you know, having the most success. So why change when you're having success, but why so many coaching changes, especially, Early on in his career, you know, Darren Cahill, he, he just coached him to winning the U.S. Open, you know. And, and then he goes and he, he parts ways with Darren Cahill when arguably you would think, why would you want to break this team up when you just won the U.S. Open, right? So, I mean, I don't know the, the reason for that, but I just want to get you guys' uh, – give me your impressions on the coaching changes and anything you want to add when it comes to his career
2: highlights go ahead Eric um, I think you know without actually asking him himself all right why did you go through so many I, I think it, it could be one of really two in my opinion uh, two reasons it uh, you know he he looks for the spark the spark of motivation um, it's telling someone who be <laughs> really funny to say this it makes me it makes me think of like the girl who used to like to date in high school just to date. Like she'd date somebody and then once that that like new relationshipy feel disappeared, he would just go to somebody else. It was almost like he needed a coach for motivation more than he could do it himself. And once that coach did not provide him what he felt that he needed, he would just change to another one. I mean, you look at it, you know, 97, 98, that's a year. 98 01 is 3. 01-03 is basically 3. Then 4. He really never had a coach. Tony Roach was the longest coach he had, period, of six years. 2010. 2010 is when he went through three of them. So it's like, it, it's, it felt like he either just could not get with somebody who matched what he wanted, and he did with it to a certain period of time before he couldn't take it anymore, maybe. And he's like, all right, I got to find somebody else. Or he just liked, you know, it, it was somebody new, fresh look, fresh aspect. And once that kind of wore out, like the new relationship, you feel, which is a funny comparison, but it's the only one I can think of. Um, and, and then he just thought he needed to switch, you know, and, and I can understand that to an extent, too, where, you know, you know, basically after 03 to 07, he had Roger Rashid, um, which was doing OK for him. But. I think he figured out at that point he probably wasn't going to win a Grand Slam anymore. And then he needed a change to, you know, try to help fix his game, figure it out. And he went through a lot of coaches shortly after. I mean, from, you know, 07 to 10, basically in a three-year period, he went through six coaches. Right. Well,
1: I mean, there are, there, there could also be – I just want to interject this. There could also be some overlap. You know, there could also be, like, multiple coaches on the staff. Like, like with Djokovic, you know, he had – um was it what's his what was his old coach?
2: But see, those were physios. I mean, now, no, 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 i know no, I where like he, had he had his Becker, regular but coach and then he brought on Becker. But that's kind yeah. of unusual. Yeah, I suppose.
3: Yeah, I guess that's true. Well, again, I think this happened a lot more in this time frame, you know, years back. Um I do believe like the the Cahill Stoneberg there. Remember, Cahill worked with Australia's Federation for the majority of his, you know, career in tennis, really, uh, and Stoltenberg, I believe, did as well. And so, you know, we see in two thousand one that both were coaches. I think that that one was more of a handoff because I think Cahill was at that point in time. You know, really, really imparting um, with tennis Australia at that point in time. No,
1: remember? Um, no, no, no. Because if you look at Andre Agassi's autobiography, well, yeah, that's true. With he that, did switch that's from true. yeah, because yeah, he true. was going to go. He did obviously with Andre too. So because yeah, he was going to, he was leaving Hewitt, or or they were parting, and he was going to coach Safin. Cahill was going to go to Safin and that's when Andre called him back and said, "Hey, look, you can't, you got to work with me. I have game left." You know, so again, why that's they why they I broke up true. specifically? I don't know. Here's my here's my take. I think that Hewitt has a certain attitude, and I think he's one of those guys. He's got a lot of passion, and I think he's got a lot of fire in his belly. And just based on everything that I've heard about you know him as a player, and, and from all, all intents and purposes, I've heard he's a nice guy. But I think he has a certain Personality. Attitude. I think he has <laughs> personality a personality. I think attitude. he has a certain personality, and I think that it can wear people down over time. You know, and I feel like that that could become an issue after a few years, and and so that's my personal opinion that this was partially why he went through so many coaches. I think.
3: It could be. Yeah. That's just my and, opinion. And in my honest opinion, I think both of you are kind of right. Eric, I completely agree with you in the fact that I think that he was always trying to look for someone new with some new idea, uh, you know, the bright, shiny new idea um, of, of where, where to go and what to do. Um, and again, you know, we talked about the simple fact that he didn't have the weapons that all the other guys that he was playing against did. I think for him a lot of it might have been strategy based. You know, he was looking for coaches that had different ideas, different strategies, um, for him to, you know, maximize what he had um, and be able to implore you know, go in, in with specific strategies or, you know, try doing this a little bit differently. Um or, or try doing you know, Basically, things like that, where each each guy probably had completely different philosophies as far as what they did or what they were good at coaching or specifics within coaching. But I think for him, again, like you said, Eric, I think I, I kind of feel like yours is probably the best explanation. Um, but I mean, we obviously have to throw in there: is as injured as he was over those time frames. Is it a possibility that some of those coaches parted ways with him just because simple fact that he was injured?
4: That's we impossible. don't know. Yeah.
3: I mean, I don't. I haven't gone that in depth as far as my you know research on it, but I think that that kind of had to have some type of factor in it a little bit. Um, and I I would say that would be the case until Tony Roach, because you know Roach parted ways with him for a year, but for the most part, Roach was with him almost for a ten year period, uh, with the exception of like one year. So Roach was the only guy that was with him for a really long period of his career. You know, we talk about basically almost half of his career. That Roach coached him um, and you know we know some of the other great players that Tony Roach has coached so obviously he had to have seen something in Leighton to stay with him as many years as he did but obviously you know for Leighton it was just a simple fact that he just didn't have enough tools to compete with the guys he was playing with especially in the later half of his career with all the injuries he had built up to
1: okay um, uh, the career win-loss record if I could talk win-loss record pretty good 70 percent in considering i think the early stages of his his career he was winning a lot he probably and i don't i didn't verify this but he was probably well over 80 percent in the you know 98 to say end of 2003 uh probably that four or five year period he was probably winning a majority of his of his matches um and I think the back end of his career is where he had the most trouble after that so but the the titles are good thirty uh the week spent eighty um that's definitely you know that's pretty good you know uh mm-hmm. two grand sometimes two davis cup titles year end champion twice year end number one twice those are all pretty fantastic numbers, really I mean no matter how you slice it and regardless of whatever other caveats you want to throw in there I think that's that is a a pretty good pretty great career i think there's a lot of players that would kill to have that career agreed
4: all right so let's move on to set three everyone knows that itunes reviews really helps their podcast reach more people but did you know that rating and reviewing us on itunes will benefit you as well every month we'll be noting who rated and reviewed us across all of our podcasts doing so will put you in the running for a gift from our sponsor spindlecraft If you rate and review one of our podcasts, you will gain one entry. If you rate two, you gain two entries, and so on. This allows us to give a little something back for taking the time to rate and review our podcasts. You'll continue to be eligible to win each month for six months or until the sponsorship ends. Winners will not be authorized to win again. It only takes a few minutes, but we think it's worth it. You should too. Okay, so I'm going to pose this question.
1: What made Leighton Hewitt so great as a player? That's my question for you guys, yeah. Michael. What what made Hewton, or Leighton Hewitt so great? What was the was the defining aspect that turned him into a Grand Slam champion?
3: Well, uh, obviously his his ability to just give it everything, give everything every time he went out there, um, which again encapsulated that grinder mentality that that, that I had brought up earlier. Um, and and coupled with the fact that he was a grinder, he was going to basically outwork you. No matter what you did, he was going to outwork you. And and in theory, you know, he is one of the best shot makers um, over the history of the game, I think, as far as his ability to come up with shots off the forehand and backhand side. Um, One of the better players, I think, at hitting it on the run, Uh, especially, uh, you know, because he was on the run so much. But I think that uh the true the true shot making ability he had uh in the grinder mentality for me was was his biggest uh reasons that made him so great. Okay.
1: Eric, uh, what about you? Anything you wanna add?
2: Kinda of, kind of similar. I mean he had a lot of a lot of determination, grit and determination I think got him a lot of you know, got him his early early titles. Um You know, he always gave it his all for the for the most part, which, you know, we see now is just kind of a struggle with Australian tennis. So I think that's something that that put him apart from a lot of people, you know, they didn't have as much determination off the court, staying fit, so on and so forth. Um, You know, you hear the stories about about players. I mean, you see what Agassi said, what he would do, you know, until he kind of did his resurgence and got, got his head back into it and really train. You know, a lot of people didn't. They, they put in decent effort off the court they put in a good effort on the court but there was very few individuals that were really driven to always give it 100% every time uh, and, and he was one of them now we're seeing unfortunately the opposite with Bernie Tomac and Nick Kyrgios um, you know saying openly about how they don't really care for the most part Kyrgios, you know, turning it around but I think that was a, a, a different characteristic at that time frame because you know, besides him it was, it was kind of Agassi and it was Sampras, were like the last two that really gave it their all all the time that you'd see out of a champion. And I think he did it as well. Now Roger comes out and does it as you know. Well, we see people move on, but I think that's in that in what what made him great was even after he was being beaten. Over and over again, and kind of realized he wasn't going to win. He still did it. He still, that means, you he showed he loved the game, kind of like what Agassi said towards the end of his career when he realized he didn't hate the game. He actually loved the game. Um, I think he always loved the game, loved playing, whether he won or not. Um, I think he always gave it his, his all because he just wanted to beat the guy on the other side of the net. Um, whether he knew he had a shot or not, you know, might have something to do with it a little bit, but I think that's what made him, you know, really great is he didn't just give up. And maybe he, you know, wanted to win a little too much. Maybe that's what led to a couple of injuries, overplaying, going for points that he should have probably not tried to track down, uh, you know, things of that nature. Uh, so it could have also been a little bit of a detriment to, possibly to his career. Um, you know, and he was like it, like the early aspect of Nadal where he, you know, he grinded out all those points, uh, like I just said. And I think. Um, That's that's a really good good aspect because a lot of times people you know they don't feel like they're in the point they just let it go. You had a lot of winners back in the day. You had a lot of short points. You know, someone gets a good angle and the other guy's like, oh crap, I lost it. And you know, he would run it down and make you hit that next shot, which we would see eventually in Nadal when he comes onto the tour employ the same thing.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. Look, for me, uh, Hewitt Grinder is a perfect like you said a perfect description. Because that's exactly what he needed to do. He never had a truly dominating shot. He didn't have a great backhand or a great forehand. They were solid, you know. Like on a scale of one to ten, they were a six, you know, or a six and a half, or something. Maybe a seven at best. But they were never a nine or a ten, you know. That shot that could totally take over a point. And he never had a big serve. Yeah, he'd get a few aces here and there, but you know, we're talking four. Maybe five in a match, uh, not the the fifteen twenty that you see a lot, of, a lot of other big servers have. So he can never win a ton of free points, and therefore he had to be a great shot selector. It was always placement with with uh, Hewitt. That's what made him so great because he would he knew where to put the next shot. Now, as I was thinking about this uh, and you know, come up with the notes and everything. I realized that we have another Hewitt on tour currently, and that is David Ferrer. If you look at David Ferrer, he and Hewitt share so many similarities. It's, it's ridiculous. They, they, their games are so similar. Uh, I think Ferrer, like Hewitt, doesn't have any big weapons. Um, both of them you know, need to be great shot selectors and chasing down every points. With that never-say-die attitude... And uh, so, you have that. You know, is like the male version of currently the, the Hewitt that was still playing on the tour. And I was thinking, he's also like a Martina Hingis. Hingis on the on the women's side never had a truly dominating game either in terms of uh, power. You know, Hingis never could never could put the kind of oomph behind her shot. She just couldn't do it. She was so much smaller. So Hingis won just with creativity and consistency necessitated it. So that for me is what makes Hewitt great. Uh maximizing his talent. He took he he squeezed every ounce that he could out of out of his talent and it got him a, a Hall of Fame career. So it's fantastic.
3: Uh real quick Mike, I I actually did pull up a little bit of research. We just talked about it previously. Um we said about his seventy percent win percentage for his career and the fact that you know he, he where did where was the true uh you know w- where was the true you know win loss there from 2001 through 2005 um and we talked about you know those years a little bit but he was basically at 80% over that 5 year stretch uh those 5 seasons he was at 80% or above basically for those 5 seasons okay Um, so then, you know, if we talk about, he was at 80% there, 2000, he was at 76. So he was pretty close to that. Um, we're going to say from 2006 forward, he was never better than 70% from 2006 forward. There you go. So, so there you go. And, and about the last like five or six years, um, he was floating around that 50% mark. Now, again, obviously there was a lot less tennis played, but the fact is he was still floating around that, that period of time. Okay
1: well there you go perfect uh all right so we're gonna move on to set four here we're gonna pose a couple questions and then we're gonna go into our final thoughts in set five so we're moving on to set four now all right set four. two questions for you guys i'm gonna pose them give me your answers so eric we'll start with you uh what could have been that's kind of the theme here for set four uh mm. without injuries could hewitt have done more eric
2: uh, yes, I, I think he could have done more um, just not being injured. I don't think it would have necessarily netted him um, grand slams, uh, but I think it would have netted him more titles, um, you know, would have had more breakthroughs, more um, confidence if he would have had less injuries like like Federer. who's only had a couple and even minor ones besides the the six month layoff he kind of took. um he would have just had more confidence in, you know, that that's a huge part of a tennis player's game. I mean, look at look at Roger now. Granted, the kind of the injuries to the doll, Djokovic and Murray aided a little bit. But even last year, you know, he went five years without winning one breaks through Australian Open and then, you know, look at it. Three out of the last five grand slams, it's Roger. And the other two, Nadal. So confidence is a big part of it. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't believe he wouldn't necessarily. He might have broken through and won, you know, won a, a slam that nobody else paid attention to. But I don't think it would have made him a slam winner again. Because once Roger in 03 came on, it was just, it's you know, besides Nadal, nobody else has beaten him uh, in 04. I mean, um, but I think he would have gotten more titles. You would have gotten to master series things like that. Uh, definitely, I definitely think so.
3: Okay, Michael. I I actually think that he could have snuck out, maybe one,
2: maybe one more. That's no, that's it. That maybe true, you know. I, I
3: mean, I, I don't want to say that without the injuries that we're looking at, Leighton Hewitt, that's got like eight or ten slams. No, 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 no. But, um, yeah, but I definitely think that he could have added. But I think you're right, Eric. I think the biggest difference that it would have made is I think that encapsulating other large titles that he could have won. Um, I definitely think that he could have gotten more uh, Master Series events, which, again, um, is kind of like that Tier 2 stone uh, when we talk about player greatness, you know, other than winning the Grand Slams. Well, how many Master Series did they win? Well, Leighton only won two Master Series events, and it was a back-to-back years. He won Indian Wells back-to-back. That's it. Uh, lots of other lots of uh, you know there's five other finals i believe that he was in a bunch of semi-finals that he was in um but again nothing after that again we're encapsulating that 2000 we'll say 2000 to 2005 basically that was his chunk of time that that five-year stretch or six years um where he basically he basically was among the top players at every event all the time uh but other than that i don't I, without the injuries down the line, yeah, he might have been able to win a couple of more big titles but I and maybe, maybe eke out a slam uh, if some things fell his way. But it, to be truly honest, I don't think that it would have uh, – I don't think that it would have made his career go from a, a really good career to a super amazing career or however you want to say it. Um, but I, I think that he would have been more of a factor. But I don't think that it would have necessarily, you know, completely changed his career in a a way that we couldn't have imagined. Okay. Um,
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that the lack of injuries would have helped him, but we're still talking about a player that maybe not didn't have the weapons, you know, to really push the other players around, but. Like you said, I think there's a possibility that he could have had a Cinderella run somewhere. Kind of did in the 2009 Wimbledon. I mean, he almost made it to the final. Again, though, he would have faced Roger on the other side. But, you know, until the finals played, you never know what would have happened that day. Uh, But in general, lack of injuries, I think there might have been one slam somewhere. Maybe somebody gets knocked out or maybe he knocks somebody out. Domino's fall his way. Maybe he gets a, a player on the other side of the net who is maybe young or uh, just he just has a great day or a great tournament and he maybe gets that that one more slam that he was looking for and just never got so healthier uh, hewitt definitely would have i think at least been in the conversation a little more often all right so let's move on to question two what if hewitt had bigger weapons Uh, despite maximizing his talent uh, you have to wonder what the tennis landscape might have looked like if he had had at least one weapon, whether it be a giant serve, maybe a killer forehand or backhand. What do you think this would have done for him? If he would have had at least one weapon, and you can pick which one you want for this uh, this question, this hypothetical here. But if he had one weapon, one giant weapon, what do you think he could have done with it? Uh,
3: Michael, why don't you take the lead on this one? Um. I'm going to go on the forehand side because he, he had a, a super solid backhand. His forehand had a little more power to it. So of the two, I actually think it was the bigger shot, but it had a tendency to break down more. But if we're going to say a bigger weapon, I'm going to go with the forehand side. If he had a bigger forehand, even let's say that wasn't his best shot, like his backhand was still steadier, um, I think I think he wins significantly more slams. I think we talk about maybe that five to six range now. Uh, instead of two. Um, and I think that he wins a lot more bigger titles. And I think that it allows him to stay in that running for a few more years. Uh, maybe stretch out that five, six-year range to maybe like eight or nine years. That he would have been a major factor at slams and events. Um, I, I was I was kind of, you know uh, you know, looking back at some of the events... You know, again, I talked about a lot of those players when he was playing those those guys that were just beating him, um, but he was giving them everything they could handle. We talk about Roger in his early years. We talk about Roddick. Um, you know, we talk about Saffin and the other guys that were winning some slams around the same time as you know Hewitt was having success. Um, if he has one weapon, we'll say the forehand, just for example. Um, I think that I think that he wins significantly more titles and significantly more slams. I think we push his slams, like I said, in my opinion, maybe to five or six maybe instead of two. Um, and I think that we we move his overall titles from thirty to maybe that forty five to fifty range. in my opinion. I think that there's a lot of you know matches that he lost late in tournaments to guys that just had more firepower than him. And he just couldn't outgrind them. You know, he, he couldn't grind them down enough. They still had enough weaponry to get through him, even though he gave them all that he had. Um, I, I just threw in an example here. Um, we'll say the uh, 2007 Cincinnati semifinal. Uh, I, he lost in semis to um, to Roger, but he lost 6-3, 6-7, 7-6 to Roger in a match that was really close. If he has more firepower in that instance, who's to say that he doesn't win it? I mean, it's it's really it was a really close match, and he had a lot of really close matches against the top guys. Uh, we talked about that that Roddick quarterfinal at Wimbledon. If he has those weapons, you know, if you have that one big weapon, that's a big deal on grass. Um, and I, I like I said, I think that it significantly changes uh adds at least a couple more slams for him and I think that it adds um a good maybe fifteen titles at least to his total.
1: Okay. Uh Eric Uh
2: I I agree. Uh and there's a couple of sentiments with it. Um depending on what particular um skill is like you, you turn it as a big weapon, I think will change a little bit because it's gonna come down to you know, I think once O three O four comes and Roger comes back, I don't think it was going to necessarily lend him to start beating Roger. Maybe one. He might have gotten him somewhere, but I think it would have let him win in 01 and 02 in the first half of 03 um, and maybe even 03 S Open where Andy won. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't get injured as much, so he's playing less points. You have a more powerful weapon. You're getting easier points, free points. He's not grinding as much. Um, like what we heard about, you know, with the doll, the doll just killed everybody. You know, his endurance is higher than everybody else. When he was younger, he just kept the ball in play, always got it back. And you saw what had happened. He won, but he wanted a cost. And as he got you know a little older and realized all right you've got a you know his forehand was always big, but for a little bit there he wasn't using it to try to hit winners all the time. You know he got more aggressive. So I think if you have an aggressive shot like um like a like a backhand or a forehand, not as much to serve because at the end of the day, you know he's wasn't serving volier. If he was if he had a huge serve and did like a Pete, okay. But I think forehand or backhand better. um, he wins a couple more slams, especially a one or two or three before Roger resurgence kind of happens and then dog comes along. Um, but I think he also doesn't get injured as much. So I think it adds titles, you know, like like Mikey said, maybe even a few more than what he said, you know, um, maybe 50 because he's going to win a bunch more little ones and stuff. And you got all the tournaments he didn't get to play while being injured. You know, and I'm not saying he wouldn't still get injured, but. You know, you just feel that if they were injuries based on the way he plays and play style, which is similar to it all, you know, we've seen it all get injured less in the last five years, ten, ten years, well, not ten years, but the last five years than the previous five before it. Um, I think that, yeah, I think we definitely see um, a much more impressive resume with probably two to three more Grand Slams. I'd imagine, you know, I'd say north of 20 more titles, you know, because he's not he's not going like to said. I'm just doing like like, you know, in my head, figuring out it's like a like a waterfall where a bigger shot leads to more wins, but leads to less court time, which leads to less injuries, which leads to more play time and more Mm -hmm. titles, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, it it, that's it's kind of like Wozniacki. Yeah, she finally broke through in one. But for the longest time, she was just a consistent backhand and forehand hitter. And could win and kind of like similar to him, could win, ground people out, but didn't blow anybody off the court. Wasn't crushing people, didn't, doesn't have a huge, didn't have a huge shot, you know, and I'm not really still certain she kind of does have a huge shot per se, but it was enough to finally break through. Um, and that's just what I see in my head. Similarly, is it took a long time. Now he had pretty quick success and in, in, in whatnot. But then, you know, once he had other people with more weapons than him come along, you saw he couldn't do it. Um, so that's where, I, like I said, I'm, I hate to bag on him, but he benefited from, the, you know, kind of a weaker period where he was the best of that time until other people came around. But I think if he'd had more of a weapon, like we just said, different different thing, we'd be talking about right now um, probably five, six grand slams, um, and a lot more titles.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, regardless of what way you go, whether you give him a giant serve, uh, which would have given him a ton of free points, uh, which even (laughs) in and of itself would have helped tremendously. I mean, look at Roddick. Roddick's game was built on his serve. Yeah. Roddick had a decent forehand, uh, which he ended up really screwing up as his career went along, but it's a different No, no, discussion. no, that wasn't him. That was his coach. Yeah, I know, but it's a, it's a different discussion. <laughs> that was all
3: Stapagy's di- fault.
1: <laughs> yeah, different discussion for a different day. But the point is, you know, a giant serve wins you a ton of free points, even if it's not aces. And so even if I gave, even kept his, his ground game as it was, but gave him a giant serve, you know, again, you, you could be talking entirely different uh, career here. And I I agree. I think giving at least one big weapon, he probably would have won in the five to seven slam range. And like you said, Michael, I could see him somewhere around 50 titles for his career. Um, Let's tack on about another 20 titles. And I think that's probably is a pretty good uh, career, pretty good career, obviously. Well, it's a good career regardless, but having another 20, that's a big deal. Um, All right. So let's move on to set five. Okay, so set five is our final word on Leighton Hewitt. Um, Eric, I'm going to let you go first. What is your final <clears throat> word on his career as a player?
2: Um, I'd say it boils down to Leighton Hewitt um, is really a, a man, his is career of admiration in a way, um, You know, it, not just because he was a Grand Slam winner, but he fought through a lot of adversity, a lot of injuries, could have packed the bag in, said, that's it, you know. Had my chance, won a couple, you know, see y'all later. Um, but that wasn't him. He was uh, the type of guy who loved to play the game, played it, you know, 100% every point like Nadal does. Um, I feel that, like we just talked about the last set, uh, he had some untapped potential due to the nature of his game and not really having a super strength, not anything that stands out like an Eva Karlovic serve or... Um, really the serve of Federer and then Murray's backhand, so on and so forth. Most people are known for, like, their danger shot, like Nadal's forehand. never really had that. If he had had that, um, you know, he's got a lot of potential, I think, more than any other player that I can think of recently, that if they just had this, they'd had a lot more slams. It's really him. Um because nobody else really won a couple of slams and deserved to win more. You know, chillich got lucky. I will say Del Potro, I'll put kind of in that league because, uh, you know, him and his injuries, it's like, ah, oh, man, what could have been? But for Leighton Hewitt, that's how I feel. It's like, man, if he just had something else, would have been more. Um, but again, get admire that the guy, you know, very quickly had success. So most of his career was not as much of a success. It was early, and then he played basically the last... 13 years 14 years of his career winning you know less titles than he did in the first five six um type of deal so that tells me that someone you know really liked to play the game uh and he was a true ambassador to support it's something that you know his fellow australians need to take take a note of uh in my opinion um i think if he like i said before would have had a better shot we would uh, have had a less injured hewitt um and we would see in Australia that would have multiple champions at this point, because you see what happens when you don't have a player to carry the mantle. Look at, look at the Americans right now. I mean, Roddick was a, a blip on the radar um, and nobody else really followed it through with a slam yet. You know, after Leighton Hewitt, you know, and he his injuries, nobody really has come along to take the mantle, um, which is really sad because, you know, he's attitude, off the court, um, notwithstanding, he's someone who's a pretty, pretty model player. He, he has his outbursts, but you know, it's someone that's you really gotta respect. And I think a lot of his you know peers did respect him, um, and it was well deserved. But I think that my final word on him is uh, you know a, a great player, but untapped potential, um, because he was not as good as his peers ended up being it's like he peaked early but wasn't high enough and then his peers around him peaked higher and then unfortunately because he didn't have that shot it doomed him
3: okay michael um uh, some of the sentiments that eric said um obviously he's he's the the epitome of the you know the hardest working guy out on the court i mean he really is um we we talked about the injuries. We talked about the fact that, you know, he's basically had to stop and start his career, I don't know, a dozen times over due to the length of the injuries that he's had and the amount of injuries that he's had over his career. Um obviously, um, the fact that he still went out there and was still giving it his all all the time. Um just the simple fact that like we said, um is being that he just didn't have that ability to put a rally away all the time, or didn't have the ability to shorten a point or just didn't have the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to end it right here. He just didn't have that ability. Uh, when he played, um, regardless of whether it was the early part of his career or the later part of his career um, was the the biggest defining point of, of Hewitt in, in my eyes, as far as a player, he, the hardest working guy out there and did probably more than he should have been able to do with what he had. Let's be honest. We, we, we talk about tennis as a sport that you have to have, uh, you have to have a weapon. And we see a guy that goes out there, he wins two slams. He makes two other slam finals and, you know, a handful more semifinals and a ton of quarterfinals, but yet, um, he, he did it without a weapon. So in my eyes, I, I actually give credit to Hewitt for winning slams and having the you know Hall of Fame career that he did without having a weapon and without having that defining shot or that defining trademark. But I think in this instance, the trademark for Hewitt was uh, his tenacity, his grit, and the ability to go out there and give 110%, even if he didn't necessarily have 110% to give, um, which I think is the defining thing for him.
1: Okay. All right, so for me um... – I pretty much agree with both of you, what you said. I think he did rise up in that kind of area between, you know, when Sampras was coming to an end of his career and the new generation. It yielded him some grand slams, obviously. And that's something he shouldn't apologize for in a way. Uh, we can, we got to put it into context because that's what we got to do. You know, we have to look at his career and kind of judge it, you know, as fairly as possible. But that being said, I think – His fighting spirit, you know, he was fiery on court. He fought for every point. He needed to be consistent. He needed to be, his shot selection needed to be perfect. And when you have to be that perfect, it means you have a lot of focus. And to have that focus, you honestly have to have a love for the game. And I think Hewitt's love for the game shined every time he went out there. It didn't matter whether he was healthy or not. Whether he was limping around the court, whether his knee was sore, whether his shoulder was bothering him, if he could walk out on court, he was going to give you everything he had. And you have to respect that. Um, He was, I think, one of those players who, throughout his career, he was constantly feeding from the crowd. Like That's where he got his energy, pumping up the crowd. The crowd pumped him up. And I think he took that seriously, every time he went out there. I love it. I love him for his effort. I love him for his dedication to playing the game, even when he wasn't winning the biggest titles. Most of his titles, honestly, if you look at the breakdown, most of his titles were like ATP 250 titles. I mean, apart from the Grand Slams and the handful of Master Series titles that he'd won, a lot of them were smaller titles. But they were still big titles for him. And uh, I just... I think he should be respected as a player who maximized his talent every time he went out there and throughout his career and gave it his all. And you can't take that away from him. You shouldn't. There you go. All right. Uh, That's it, I think, for our player profile this week. Um, Actually, this month, right? Because we're just doing Leighton Hewitt. Uh, We do have other ones coming up here, and we probably should look at them and what's is our next
2: one that we're doing?
3: I don't think we have a specific one that we were doing now. Yeah, Mark, we
2: threw out a few names. No. Um, what we're gonna do in between, you know, like the French, because when the French comes around, we're gonna do uh, like we did this year, some of the legendary. Uh, players uh, of the French Open women and men in between. uh, We threw a couple names out, Mike. We haven't yet decided, so it'll be uh, kind of a surprise. Normally, I'm not sure if we're going to at the end of a player profile, say who we're doing next. Um, We might do that, but as of right now, it'll just be a surprise. Okay. Well,
1: fair enough. All right. We'll decide that uh, later. Uh, All right. That's it for this episode. Uh, So we'll see you guys next time on the uh, tennis addict podcast atp player profile uh, until then have a good one and we'll see you next time Yep, thanks for
2: listening thanks
0: thanks for listening to the tennis addict podcast by freaking geeks media be sure to visit freakinggeeks.com as well as our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash freaking geeks for more great content also please consider rating and reviewing us on itunes it really helps if you would like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lannick or at Freak Geeks.